And Jesus, we want to follow you. We pray that in all things you would be glorified. I pray, Lord, even as we come to your word, that every heart and mind would be turned towards Jesus this morning. And so, God, we ask your blessing upon the teaching of the word, that it would be with power, that it would be with, with unction, that it would be with authority, uh, that your spirit would anoint it in Jesus' name. Amen. Right on, we're in Exodus chapter 20. You can turn there with me. Those that are visiting and are here for the first time, we've been just going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Exodus. We come to chapter 20. It's the Ten Commandments this morning. Great text. And um, the scene is this. Just to bring you up to speed, if you haven't been here and you're wondering, okay, what, what's the scene? God has led his people from Egypt through the, across the, uh, through the Red Sea, across the desert. The Lord has led them to the foot of Mount Sinai where they were to come and worship the Lord. And God, as we saw last week in Exodus chapter 19, has descended upon this mountain. And this is an awesome scene. That's why it's worth just uh, mentioning that before we go into the text this morning, because the Lord has come right down on top of the mountain, the scripture says, that the mountain was engulfed in flame, that it was also engulfed with the cloud of his presence in a thick sense, that there was coming up from the mountain smoke rising like it was coming out of a kiln. You know, you just imagine it straight up into, into heaven. It was not moving to the right or to the left. No wind was moving it. There was lightning. There was thunder. The Bible says the sound of a trumpet was blowing and it was getting louder and, and louder. And the mountain itself was trembling. Mount Sinai is a solid granite mountain. It's not a volcano or anything like that. It is a solid mountain. And the mountain itself was shaking at the presence of God. And so you can imagine the people of God gathered at the foot of the mountain. They've come to worship. They've come to hear God speak to them. And they themselves are trembling, as you can, as you can imagine, as God began to speak to them. And the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy chapter 4 that though no form was seen, that God spoke to them out of the thunder, that everyone heard his voice. It wasn't just Moses at this point in time. The entire nation, the entire people of Israel heard God speak these words that we're about to read. And it says in verse 1, And the Lord spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, called the message appropriately, the Ten Commandments. The ten, we're about to go over those. But before we get there, before God gives these directives, these instructions, these commands to his people, uh, he's going to clarify some things right before he starts. First of all, who am I and what have I done for you? Okay, really two reasons for these laws, two reasons for these 10 commandments and he's about to, that he's about to speak and it's this. Who, who is God? He said, I am the Lord your God. Very, very personal. The, the Lord identifies these people as his own. You belong to me and I am your God. Therefore, I'm about to speak these things to you. The second thing the Lord says is what he's done for these people. And that's this. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. I, I led you out of the house of slavery. When the oppression and the, and the burden of slavery became more than you could bear. And you cried out to me for help. I came down. I saw the oppression and I led you out. 
I am the Lord your God. I led you out of the house of slavery. So the foundation's clear. Who this is, who this God is, and what he's done for these people. And the sense here is this, is that he's saying, because I have done this for you, because I am your God, you have some obligations in response to me. And I'm about to share them with you, the Lord's saying. And, and these laws that we're about to go through, we need to understand they're not invented by Moses. Moses didn't make these up. Okay? These were spoken by the Lord and all the people heard these things. And in speaking these laws, God simply and clearly defines what he's already placed in every human heart, okay? In the heart of man. These are the moral laws of God, the Ten Commandments. We call it the Decalogue sometimes. The Ten Commandments, that's the fancy word, the Decalogue. And these um, commandments are really divided in two ways, we often say. We say this. There's a, a vertical sense to these commandments and there's a horizontal sense. We say the first four commandments are vertical in their direction. That means this, they, they direct man in regards to his relationship with God, his creator. I am the Lord your God. How does that work? How do I? The first four commands direct that way. The next six commands pertain to, we call them horizontal. They pertain to man's dealings with other people. How do I, because God is my God, how do I relate to other people? Now, of course, Jesus said this. He said, you can sum up all of the laws and all of the prophets in this simple statement. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. A vertical dimension, a horizontal dimension. When you think of these 10 commandments, we're going to see later on this whole scene when Moses smashes the tablets and stuff. You know, there's two tablets and we think, okay, well, you know, five, maybe five commandments on one tablet and five commandments are maybe the, the vertical commandments on one tablet and the horizontal commandments on the other tablet, but that's actually not the case. You had a, one tablet with all 10 commandments and you had a second tablet, again, with all 10. Ten Commandments, two copies of the exact same thing. And the reason why is this. This is a covenant relationship. These people are, are entering into a covenant relationship with God. It's like a contract. And so God says, here's your copy. Here's my copy. I'm going to give them to you. They're for safekeeping. This is how I will relate to you. This is how you will relate to me. And it will be on the basis of these moral laws. And so, you know, Sometimes when we think about the Ten Commandments, we might think, well, are these things outdated. How do they pertain to me? You know, don't we live under grace and not under law? You know, I, I understand, you know, you might say the laws were given at Mount Sinai, these Ten Commandments, these moral laws. But how do I relate to them? Because isn't there more than that? And there is. You know, when we were in Israel, uh, one of, one of the things that they like to sell tourists are these lots of artwork of pomegranates. Because they say that if you, I don't know if this is true, but they say that when you open a pomegranate, if you were to pull it apart and count the seeds, there's 613 seeds. And so the people of Israel hold to this as a sign of God's law because the pomegranate is a symbol of that because in the Bible, there's 613 laws from God that he gives. And we, we call the Ten Commandments, but there's more than that. And really, we can divide them into two categories if we say, well, how do I relate to the commandments of God? Whether the 10 or the 613, 
Really, God divides his laws this way. We call them the law of God and the laws of Moses or the God's moral law and, you know, the rest of the laws that direct our lives in this sense, you know, the laws of Moses, which instructed people in regards to their dealings with slaves, their dealings with land transactions, you know, uh, with worship, with manslaughter, you know, with whatever it is. That end of it, the laws of Moses, we don't live under the law of Moses. But the Ten Commandments are still in place, even though we live under grace. And so here we're going to see these Ten Commandments were, were given here in Exodus 20 directly from God. They were written down, preserved in the ark for all peoples at all times. Uh, the only one actually out of all the Ten Commandments, they're all repeated in the New Testament except for one. The law about the Sabbath. And we're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later on. But they're all uh, mentioned. And so, you know, I would say as, as we just lay a little bit of groundwork for diving into these Ten Commandments, I would say that though we live under grace, the Ten Commandments are still morally binding for all people. The people of God and all people. Because they reveal to us the holiness of God. And they reveal to us also at the same time the sinfulness of man. And so as Exodus 20 records these Ten Commandments, uh, it actually is going to go on. And I don't know if we're actually going to get there this morning. If we're going to get to this part of the text, I might just stick with just the Ten Commandments. Unless you want to stay till about 2 o'clock or so. Just kidding. No, it's beautiful. I have plans this afternoon. I'm going to talk about that later too. She want to join me, Murray? Anyways, okay, yeah. Um, as God talks about the law, he is then going to, in the same chapter, talk about the altar. Because the law and the altar uh, always go together. Let me, let me explain it in this way. It's like your bathroom. The mirror and the sink go together. You know, in your bathroom at home, you, go, you, know, you, you have a nice dinner, the barbecue, the whole thing. You walk into the bathroom and you look in the mirror and you see on your face barbecue sauce from the steak that you had eaten or whatever and you think, how long was that on my face? Why didn't anybody tell me that that was on my face? And you start to chuckle to yourself and then you see in the mirror as you smile that there's corn on the cob stuck in there and a big hunk of black pepper in the top up against the gums and, and you realize, whoa, what, what's going on here? You know, the mirror reflects the mess. But here's the thing. You can't take the mirror and wash that stuff off. You then need the sink and you turn on the tap and you apply the water. Now, the Apostle James made this application to the, to the law of God. He said the same analogy. He said the law is like the mirror. Like coming into the bath, the, the, the law reflects the man, it gives you a picture of the inside of what your heart is like. It reveals the sin. And then we need to go to the sink. We need to go to the altar. And for us, the altar is Calvary, Golgotha, the cross where Jesus Christ shed his blood. See, it, it takes not water to cleanse us of sin, but it takes the blood of Jesus Christ to purify us from the unrighteousness of sin. It takes blood to make us whiter than snow. 
And so the Ten Commandments in that sense is, here we're going to see this as we get through it. I mean, definitely this morning, the mirror, we might not quite get to the story of the sink this morning. So the Ten Commandments, I would say, is um, the expression of the mind of God relative to who man ought to be in his relationship with God. This is the picture of what man should be, ought to be before God. And it takes a look into this mirror to go, whoa, wait a minute. I am not that. I fall short of the glory of God. I need a savior. Will someone save me? And thanks be to Jesus who came to fulfill the law. In fact, you know, um, we often think of the law as something to obey. Jesus said, no, the law is something that is to be fulfilled. He said, I came not to obey the law. I came to fulfill the law. And he fulfilled it by obeying. I, I want to read to you Matthew 5, 17 to 20. There's a slide there up there for you because I want you to follow this. It says this. Jesus said this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of God. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes of the Pharisees, that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, I, when I was reading this through my studies, I thought, man, that is, we live in a culture that has relaxed these laws, right? That has relaxed the command of God. In fact, in many ways, you know, we might even say the church has relaxed these things. So we say, oh, we live under grace and not under law. So let's go through them. And I, and I don't want to relax them this morning, okay? So let's take it in the teeth from the Lord as much as we can, okay? The Lord spoke in the hearing of all the people. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. Besides me, some versions say. This is the first commandment. My first thought on this commandment is this. This is the exclusive claim of God on people, on all people. You shall have no other gods besides me, before me. It's a monotheistic claim. I, one God. He's saying, I made you. I created you. I know what makes you happy. No other gods besides me. And really, you know, this commandment lays the groundwork for all the commandments that, that follow. God, God identifies himself as the Lord. He's the deliverer. He's the rescuer. He rescues people from slavery. He rescued the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. He rescues us from slavery to sin and the bondage of sin and death uh, through his son, Jesus Christ. Not only did he rescue the children of Israel, but that he then began to lead him towards himself. And he does the same for us. He rescues us from sin and death. And then he takes us on a life journey where we are led closer and closer and closer to him. He guides us and directs us and by his grace leads us to himself. But the interesting thing is this. There are other gods. Little G gods, you know, lowercase 
G-gods. They're no gods, but, but people serve them. You know, in the Bible, we see all sorts of different gods that the people bowed down to. They, they bowed down and they worship Baal. You know, in the story of Elijah, 2 Kings chapter, 2 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 18. He had the showdown with the prophets of Baal and, and Baal was a God of power who looked after the agriculture, who they believed spoke in, in thunder and, and lightning and, and with rain from heaven. And, and Baal was a God who represented power and control in scripture. And some people worship the God of power, the God of control. You know, Ashtaroth in the scripture, she is a goddess of sensuality that many people worshiped in the, in, in those days. And the principle of Ashtaroth is this, if it feels good, then you do it. That's the law that binds you. That's the God that you serve. That if it feels good, then, then you pursue it. And I would say many people in our culture, we live in a culture where pleasure is worshipped. The pleasure of sensuality. There's another God in the scripture, Mammon, the God of money. You know, money in itself is not evil, but the love of money, this Bible tells us, is the root of all sorts of evils. And, and when we place our priority in life on striving for and worrying about money, we place ourselves in a, a vulnerable place. You know, money, I would say, is a great tool and it's a cruel master. There are many gods. When the Philistines captured the ark, they, they took the ark and they brought it to the temple of their God. His name was Dagon. He was a half man, a half, half fish. And they set the ark before this statue idol of Dagon. And when they got up and came to their temple in the morning, Dagon had fallen over before the ark of the covenant. So they picked him up and they stood him back up and they went home. And the next morning they came back to their temple and there was Dagon fallen over again. And this time his hands and his feet were broken off, the Bible says. See, the Lord leads I, I would say this, actually, the Lord does the same thing. When you bring God, the Lord, the King of Kings, the, the, the creator of the heavens and the universe, when you bring him into the temple of your heart, he begins to knock down the other gods. Because he says, I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods besides me. Now the Lord led his children out of slavery through the desert to the mountain. He spoke to them in thunder. Uh, but even more awesome, the prophets prophesied that, that one day God would come in the flesh and he would deliver his children, not just from a, a slavery to Egyptians, but he'd deliver them from slavery to sin. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit overshadowed a virgin in the little town of Nazareth. And she conceived and gave birth to a son and they named him Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. He's born in Bethlehem. Born in a barn because there was no room for him in the inn. You know, born into the mess of life where people said, we don't even have room for you, Jesus. Born amongst the, the poop and the mess. He came to engage and to establish, you'll have no other gods besides the Lord. You know, on another mountaintop, when he had grown up wrapped in the cloud of the presence with Peter, James, and John there with him, 
They saw him in all of his glory, just like at Mount Sinai. His face shone like lightning. His clothes were brilliant and light streamed from his robes. See, see, Jesus repeated the exclusive claim of God when he said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. When his disciple Philip heard that claim, he said, Lord, show us uh, the Father. That will be enough for us. And, and John uh, chapter 14, verse 9 and 10 Jesus responded to him and he said this, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and that the father is in me? So the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me is fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. The father spoke in an audible voice again during the days that the, of, of Jesus' ministry and the people heard him and you know what the Lord said? He said, this is my son, listen to him. And so, you know, in worshiping Jesus, we are worshiping the one true God. In, in worshiping Jesus, we are worshiping the one true God who delivers people from slavery to sin and death. The flip side of the coin is this. It's also true. Anyone who fails to worship Jesus is not worshiping the one true God. Because Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. The exclusive claim. The second commandment is this, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God, for I the Lord your God am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love, verse 6, but showing steadfast love to those to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the the second commandment is this. You're not to fashion with your hands, you're not to form or fashion any image of God. Interesting that the Bible actually teaches that you and I are made in the image of God. It's really cool when you think about it in the context of this, this verse. You know, it's, it's like, wow, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Man, that is like, that's a sermon by itself. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? You know, I would say, you get a sense of it, but you don't totally know what that means. There's some mystery in that thought to say you're fashioned in the image of God. Uh, I would say this. It has more to do with the way God has designed me spiritually than he has designed me physically. You know, Jesus, when he hung on the cross and uh, the one thief rebuked the other thief, the thief who put his faith in Jesus, Jesus turned to him and he said, Today, you and me, paradise. See, to be, when you know Jesus, to be absent from the body is to be present with God. And so the Lord says, don't make an image of God. God has made an image of himself and he's put it in you. And see, 
the true understanding of this commandment, I would say, is this. It comes when we actually begin to look at Jesus Christ. Then we see the fulfillment of this command because Jesus fully, wholly is the image of God manifest for the eyes of man. In Hebrews, we read that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The writer of Hebrews said this in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. The exact representation of his being. That Jesus sustains all things by his powerful word. That, that when he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You know, I would say to you this. Do you ever wonder what God is like? Then look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the exact representation of God. He is the image of God. You don't need to fashion anything with your hands. Bow down to an idol. Take some wood or some stone or uh, whatever it is and try and fashion a God. God revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. And I would say we ourselves being made in the image of God, the best thing that we can do is not try to fashion a God, but give ourselves to God. God, you made me in your image. Well, I'll give myself back to you. Now, as God was speaking from Sinai, the, the Bible tells us they saw no form. They only heard a voice. For them, you know, here at this mountain, the image was incomplete. Just a voice, no face. But, but check out what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine of, out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See, no form was seen, but, but God says, if you want to know the knowledge and the glory of God, I reveal it in the face of the person of Jesus, my son. And so we need not make an image of God, for God revealed himself when he clothed himself in human flesh, that he might destroy the works of the devil, the Bible says, that he might free those who all their lives were held in slavery to sin, to death, to the fear of death. And so when we look to Jesus, we're looking to God. When we look to Jesus, Jesus begins to conform us further into the image of God. Verse 7 says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord your God will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Third commandment. Here it is. Don't use God's name in vain. You know, when you love the Lord, I think one of the most offensive things for me as a follower of Jesus Christ is when I hear his name, when I hear the name, you know, the, the OMG, the dropping the JC bomb, man, is a swear word. It hurts. It hurts because you love that name. You love the person who is behind that name. You know, we love the Lord. I, I'm saved by the work of Jesus Christ. It, it hurts, you know. You think about your spouse or your kids or someone. It hurts when someone drags the name of someone you love through the dirt. Of course, the name of God is an extension of his nature and his character. The name of God speaks of his presence and his revelation and who he is. 
so to defame the name of God by using his name as a curse is to defame his perfect, holy, righteous nature and character. Jesus actually said this. He said, don't even use the name of God when you take an oath. Just let your yes be yes and your no, no. Don't even swear by his name. You know, the Jewish people so revered the name of God that they took measures, even to this day, never to speak the name of God. But you know that God never said, don't speak my name. He didn't say that. He, he never said, don't evoke my name. He, he just said, handle my name with reverence. Don't use my name in vain. You know, when Jesus came on the scene, he messed with the religious culture because, you know, the Jews believed him to have committed blasphemy because who did, what did he call God? His father. He referred to God as his father. You know, there, there are times in the Old Testament uh, that God was referred to by the people's father, even, even Moses. This, and in Deuteronomy chapter 32, 6, Moses sang this of the Lord. He said, is not he your father, he who created you and established you? See, Jesus, as the Son of God, uh, revealed this powerful way in which you and I can relate to our Creator, in which the creation can re relate to our Creator, and it's this. God's a Father. He's a perfect Father. You know, you just banish pet peeve, man. Okay, pet peeve. When people say, I can't relate to God as a Father. Look at man. That's a boomer thing, okay? That's a, that's a thing that needs to be pff, tossed out. It's crap. God's a father and he's the perfect father. We're not talking about your earthly father. We're talking about the perfect father. He, you can relate to him as your father. He will never let you down. He will never disappoint you. He is the perfect father. And Jesus taught us to pray. He said, our father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so, you know, if we back up for a second, the image of God is revealed in the person of Jesus. But likewise, God gave us something in Jesus. A new name. A name that we can use. <laughs> as his followers, even we bear his name. It's like, I got a new family name. Christian. I'm a Christian. Which simply means little Christs. We're little versions of the one we follow. We mirror him. We reflect him. We're being conformed into his image. You see, the name of Jesus fulfills all the promises that are attributed to the names of God in the Old Testament that are prophesied about the names of God. Jesus fulfills them all. We're even told, pray in the name of Jesus. When you ask, ask in the name of Jesus. You know, in the Old Testament, don't use my name in vain. Yes, absolutely. In the New Testament, here's my name and pray in it. Ask in my name. And there are many ways in which we can bring honor to the name of the Lord. In our lives, we put off practices that dishonor the name. In our hearts, we put on the attitudes and the deeds that would bring honor to the name. We believe in the power of the name of Jesus. 
We believe in the power of the name of Jesus to pull down strongholds and to cast out evil. We give honor to the name of Jesus. We give honor to the name of the Lord. You know, I just look outside for a second. You see that beauty out there? You see that ocean and, and the, just the beauty? You know that when human beings look at creation, God has designed them, that they have a desire to worship when they look at that. Romans chapter one, it's right in there. We look at creation and God has wired us. We want to worship. But Romans one tells us at the same time that when people don't know to worship the creator, one of the mistakes they make is this. They begin to worship the creation. They make up gods like Dagon, Dagon you know, half man, half fish. They make up gods like, like Baal. They don't know to praise the creator and worship him. You know, the Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God. We know the presence of God in creation. And so, you know, I would encourage you, when you look at creation and you see the beauty, begin to praise the name. Praise the name. The heavens declare the glory of God. Our praise goes to a personal God. He's so personal, he gave us his name. He said, my name is Jesus, and you can pray in my name. He's given us that name, taken us into his family, and we worship him. You know, when you love Jesus, the name of God brings delight to your heart. Oh, how sweet is the name of Jesus. Can we just say it? Jesus. Can we shout it? Jesus. That's a sweet name. That is a sweet name. The Bible says there's no other name under heaven given to men by which they must be saved. Jesus, the delight of my heart, sweet on your lips. You know, let the name of God be on the lips of his people. Praise the Lord. You know, Psalm 96 says, for great is the Lord. He is greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Jesus. Fourth commandment, verse eight. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. In this commandment, this Sabbath uh, commandment, God is revealing a principle about himself and about his people. We, the seventh day of the week is to be called the Sabbath. For us, you know, we correlate that with Saturday, right? As Christians, you know, in, the, in Old Testament times, worship day was that seventh day. When, when Jesus Christ came and the work of the cross became a reality, the followers of the Lord said, man, let's move it to the first day of the week. And the first day of the week became a day in which we worship. The seventh day is called the Sabbath because God, for six days, Genesis chapter one, 
God created the heavens and the earth. And then the Bible says time and time again, at the end of each day that God made all that he had made. And he said, it is good. And he made all that he had made day two. And it is good. And day three, it is good. Day four, it is good. Day five, it is good. Day six, it is good. And in the day seventh, the Lord looked and he said, man, it's so good. I'm going to take the day off. Okay. The Sabbath day of rest is unique to the people of God. All other nations worked all the time. The people of God were called to practice a day of rest. It, you know, it's simple, right? I mean, it's, but it's cool. When you think about it, like a basic principle of God is that God cares about um, your physical rest. And so he made a provision for his people and he made it so clear that he made it a law. You rest. I want you to rest. You, you are the people of God. You're not to work 24-7. Any workaholics in the room? You're not to work 24-7. In instituting the Sabbath, God is revealing, he's, he's revealing and he's correlating the goodness of his creation to rest. Now, this is important, so I'll try and make this clear. God rested from his work. Look, when you rest, it is an acknowledgement that God is good. I bet you never thought that about rest. When you rest, you are acknowledging God is good. Let me explain. Isaiah 30 verse 15 says this. It's up on the screen for you. For thus says the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and trust shall be your strength. There's pressure in life. Do you feel it? I feel it, man. There's pressure in this life. The bills pile up. Uh, the rat race grabs a hold of you. Uh, the enemy bears down on you. And when in life you feel those things, rat race, enemy, bills, whatever it is, pressure, 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 pressure from in life. Um, when you stop and rest in the middle of that, you're acknowledging that God is good. You're acknowledging that, sorry, I got disrupted, ISO 8. Anybody else make that upgrade? Anyways. <laughs> right on. When, when you stop and rest, you're acknowledging this. All that I have, all the good stuff in my life is not because I work hard. All the good stuff I have is because God is good. See, the Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes from where? The Father of heavenly lights. Every good thing that we have comes from God. So all that I have as Christians, we need to take this attitude. All that I have is not because of my hard work. It's not because of my smarts. It's not because of my creativity. It's not because of my ingenuity. It's not because of my energy. All that I have comes from my father. He's given it to me. And so to acknowledge and to prove that I believe that, I'm going to stop. I'm going to rest. I'm going to cease from striving. 
I'm going to cease from working and I'm going to acknowledge you are the giver of every good and perfect gift. And I trust you to provide so I can therefore rest. Does that make sense? Isn't that awesome? God, you provide the bread I joy and joy. So, so I can rest. You're the one who holds my life together. So I can rest. And, and when the people of God are working and striving it is an acknowledgement that we do not trust the goodness of God. And so it's good for us to say, Lord, I acknowledge that you are good and so I will rest. Uh, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. You know, f- for me, my rest day is Friday. I take Friday off. But I often like to like putz around my house because it's like, I enjoy that. It's like my hobby at this stage in my life to fix things around the house. But you know, I was saying to Lisa, man, life is just, this has been a full week. You know, we had the week of prayer. It was just like, go, 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 go. You know what? I am not working on the house. I'm going fishing. And she said, have a great time. And you know what? I stood in the water and I'm I worshiped the Lord as I, and he refreshed my soul. I thought, wow, it's amazing how an hour of rest, just even an hour, how God just rejuvenates you and refreshes you. You know, that's the physical reality to this, but there is a spiritual reality to this same principle. This is important likewise. Uh, This is the reason why the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is our Sabbath. Okay, just as we can labor physically, we can also strive and labor spiritually. But salvation is not granted to anyone on the basis of their striving or on the basis of their laboring before God spiritually. Salvation is granted by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So when we come to faith in Jesus and he takes the throne of our lives, when we say I'm repenting of the sin and I'm turning in faith to follow uh, Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we enter a permanent Sabbath. How awesome is that? Spiritually speaking, that there is an end to all spiritual striving when you enter into Jesus. Because salvation is not a paycheck. It's not something that you earn and, and then receive. So spiritually, the work is done because Jesus stretched out his arms. They were nailed to a cross. He shed his blood. And as he hung there, he said, what? It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. And when I put my faith in him, my spiritual laboring comes to an end. I enter the eternal rest in Jesus Christ. Jesus is my Sabbath. Jesus is your Sabbath. And it's for that reason that the New Testament never emphasizes uh, this command and said it encourages us to enter into Jesus as our Sabbath. The the New Testament doesn't emphasize. It's got to be day. Paul says, you know, just let each man figure that out to himself. I can't remember where exactly that is. I think it's in 1st or 2nd Corinthians. Let each man, you, you know, you find your rest time. You work it in there. Have it. God's designed it. It's, and remember, it's acknowledging that God is good. But it's not a legalistic thing. 
The principle of the New Testament is spiritually, enter, stop your spiritual striving and rest in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, you know, I think Jesus would say to you today, enter into my rest. You know, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, it is finished. It, the, the striving can just stop and you can start to live and enjoy life. Fifth commandment. Aren't the commandments awesome? Isn't Jesus awesome? The fifth commandment, verse 12. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Paul said that this is a commandment that's unique in the sense that it has a blessing that's attached to it. He says, your days will be long in the land if you honor your mother and father. You, know, you just think about the value that people place on family. The value that is placed on family affects a culture. We know that. You know, we understand that when family values are, are weak, when children are not taught a sense of right and wrong, when the young are not taught to honor and respect those that are older than them, a whole society is affected, right? It gets chaotic. Things, all sorts of boundaries start to move when those things get messed with. But you know that Jesus said something that's kind of crazy. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Just read this one verse and pause for a second here because uh, I want to read some more. But he said this, do not think that I've come to bring peace but the sword. You know, we, we often think about Jesus. Oh, he's peaceful and we like paint the pretty picture of Jesus. Jesus himself said, don't think I came to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. But you know what Jesus was talking about when he said that? He was talking about family relationships because he went on in verse Verse 35, as is recorded in Matthew chapter 10, he said this. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I would say the principle is this. When we follow Jesus, we come into a new family. We're given that new family name. What is it? Christian. Okay? When Jesus was in Nazareth and his ministry started and he began to heal and proclaim the good news of the gospel and perform these miracles, the gospels tell us that his own mother and his brothers came to take hold of him because they believed him to be out of his mind. <laughs> Jesus took that opportunity to teach the crowds who were there and he said, let's talk about what's true family. Yeah, there's physical blood, but there's something else that's even more important and more binding, and it's your spiritual family. And Jesus said, anyone who did the will of God was his mother and his brother and his sister. Now, don't, don't misunderstand. Jesus loved his mama. I love my mama. She's here today. We love our moms. 
And you know what? Here's the thing. Mary came around. Jesus' mother, Mary, she came around. She put her faith in her son as her savior. Jesus' brothers came around and they put their faith in their fleshly brother as their savior. You know, James, his brother James went on to become a major player in the early church. But Jesus was identifying that true family is not through the blood of physicals of descent. That true family is a follower of Jesus Christ. Our true family is when we're identified by his blood. The blood of the cross. The blood shed on the cross. In the Lord, it's a neat thought. We're family. You know, we're family. You're my brothers and sisters in Christ. One family. One body, the church. And in the body, in the church, Paul says this, you need to honor one another above yourselves. Jesus said, honor your father, and, or the Lord said at Mount Sinai, honor your father and mother that your life may be long in the land. The New Testament tells us, honor one another above yourselves. It's, it's not just, you don't just restrict this any longer to your physical family. The boundaries of this rule have moved and it includes the family of God. You honor one another above yourselves. Uh, Paul said, you know, don't use your freedom to indulge in your sinful nature. Rather learn to serve one another. Uh, the entire law, Jesus said, is summed up in one commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so in submission to Christ, we have to learn as this, in this family to submit to and to serve uh, one another. Order in the church requires submission, just like your family at home, you know? Like, you know what it's like when there's chaos and when there's order. Just like that, order in the church requires submission to one another. Let's look at the next one, sixth command. You shall not murder. Now we move from vertical to horizontal, okay? Dealing with other people. You shall not murder. Matthew chapter five. Some of these I'm gonna go through a little bit quicker. Matthew chapter five, Jesus upped the ante on this command and he got to the heart of the matter because he said and he revealed that the act of murder is rooted in the, what's in our hearts, in the anger that's in our hearts. Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, you are liable to the judgment of God. And the solution is this, you know, reconcile to your brother with whom you're angry. Come to terms with your accuser. Someone hurts you, go work it out. And Jesus provided the, uh, the very life that can rescue us from our murderous selves, right? You know, I mean, you just think in your heart, about how often you are angry at people. Maybe I'm just talking about myself. That's the root of murder. That's where the act of murder starts with thoughts of anger within the heart. And Jesus provided the very life that can save us from those murderous thoughts in our hearts. Jesus said, you know, in that sense, we are Liable to judgment, meaning that that root of anger <laughs> reveals the fruits already there, even if you haven't acted on it, the thoughts there. You know, sometimes I think, man, I've, you think I'm crazy. 
I have thoughts of murder just come into my mind sometimes. And I think, wow, that is sick, man. That is the heart of my sinful nature. It just it comes in there. I thought, oh, God, save me from this murderous heart. I know you have it too. That's why I can share it. Look, Jesus shed his blood. The wrath of God was upon him. Through his death, he saved us from hearts like that. Next commandment. Number seven. You shall not commit adultery. Now here the Lord is speaking of sexual relationships outside of the context of marriage. Again, in Matthew chapter five, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes a lot of these teachings and, and, and shows some of the fulfillment of these things. And I would say in Matthew chapter five, Jesus deepened the meaning of this command. He didn't, he didn't set it aside. He did not set this law aside. Um, and neither do we, but he transformed this law by making it even deeper, I would say. You know, he, he broadened the scope of this and he said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We get the idea. Just like murder, Jesus says this act, the act of adultery, first there's a root to the fruit and it's something that's in your heart. It's an intent that's in your heart. And Jesus says, we got to deal with that. You know, when you consider this command in light of what Jesus said, I, I think, man, only Jesus kept this command pure. Every single one of us is guilty of the sin of adultery when we consider it in the context of what Jesus said. But Jesus himself kept this command, commandment even to the point that he honored God in his heart. What a thought, eh? He honored God fully in his heart in the context of this discussion. You know, when the world thinks about sex and what sex is, it really relates sex to two things, I would say. Procreation, making babies, and recreation, having a good time. It feels good. Do it. In our culture, you know, we teach, the kids learn it in school and all that stuff, practice safe sex. But the reality is, is this, there's nothing safe about sex. There's nothing safe about sex. You can't practice safe sex. That, that's just trying to dumb down, you know, what, what the world fails to understand when it thinks that sex is all about procreation and recreation, what it fails to understand is the design of God. That God said, first of all, sex is the, for this purpose, unification. Two become one. The two shall become one. You know, I would say procreation and recreation, they're just the added benefits. Amen? Right? God's desire and plan is always that the two become one. So there's a theology in, in sex, in intimacy. It's about oneness. It's about the unity of two people before God. And so... At the issue of unity is the soul. Because the Bible tells us you unify your soul with the other person. At issue is the intimacy 
of your soul. See, sex outside of the context of marriage does damage to your soul. Sex outside of the context of marriage does damage to your relationship with Jesus Christ. Say, what? Really? I don't know. I'm, I'm breaking that rule. I don't, I don't know. Look at man. One step at a time, you bring destruction upon your, your, yourself when you're involved sexually outside of God's design. Marriage, the sanctity of marriage is the safe place. That's the only place where there's safe sex. This is why Jesus was harsh when he, when he dealt with this, you know. You know, he's harsh in his, in treatment, his treatment of adultery. He said, you, you need to know the danger. Let's not whitewash this. This is working to your destruction. What is in your heart is the problem, and we got we to gotta get to that. You're playing with dynamite here. You know, that said, Jesus was gracious to the woman caught in the act of adultery, wasn't he? He forgave her. He said, go and sin no more. And the Lord forgives you as you come to the cross in the area of, uh, of your sexuality. He forgives you. But at the same time, he says, go and sin no more. Know that you're, you know, you're playing with dynamite. Honor God in this area. You shall not commit adultery. Seventh commandment. Commandment number eight. Verse 15. You shall not steal I'm going to wrap it up quick here. Pretty straightforward, right? We've all been there. I don't know how old I was. Three. I remember being at my friend's place. I took his Hot Wheel into the pocket. We were going for a snack. You know, I kind of think, was that intentional? Was that not intentional? I don't know, but I went home with a car. We all have those stories, right? The bubble gum, the hockey cards, the whatever it is. You know, we just left with those sayings and we never returned it. Thou shalt not steal. But let's get past the child stuff and ask the hard questions for a second. Do you rob your employer of time? Do you cheat the government on your taxes? Do you take items from work? You shall not steal, said the Lord. Here's one. Do you pay your tithes to the Lord? You know, shall a man steal from God? You know, the prophet Malachi addressed that when he was writing to the people of God in, in the book of Malachi. And, and without question, the Lord said, the people are stealing from me. They rob me. They don't bring me the tithe. Stealing from the Lord. See, when it comes to stealing... Again, stealing is an issue of the heart. And, and Jesus dealt with this, I would say, and, and kind of transformed this principle when he taught on the issue of what you treasure. What you treasure. What do you treasure? See, we steal or we rob God or we rob the government or we rob our employee uh, because we want things that aren't ours or because we fear the loss of things that do not uh, belong or we fear the loss of things that belong to us, you know, our money, our bank accounts that we're going to rob from the government or not give to God. You know, we want something, we don't have it, we take it. Jesus taught the proper relationship in regards to things, possessions, money. And he said this, where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. Look at Matthew chapter 6. 
It's up on the screen. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, in the Old Testament, God spent a lot of time in the laws of Moses, those 600 ones that we're going to get into, not in depth like this. We're going to move a lot quicker through a lot of the rest of the book of Exodus. Uh, but God spent a lot of time in regards discussing ownership, discussing property, di- discussing land transactions and use, the, the possession of animals, the possession of slaves and all these things because God values those things like you and I do. Uh, God values things and properties enough that he said this, I'm going to give you an inheritance. And me, I will give you an inheritance. And he said, you can have a layaway plan that's better than Freedom 55. (laughs) Store up treasure in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. You know, if you have an issue with stealing whether government, from God, from people, from whatever, it reveals that your heart is not in heaven, my friend. I wonder what God has in store for us in heaven. It must be awesome. Because he gave a deposit. You know what the deposit is? A person. He's called the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is awesome. He himself comes with gifts and he equips us to serve one another and to to serve God. And I think that the Holy Spirit is awesome and if the deposit is so awesome, how great must the inheritance be? Do you ever think that? How awesome is the inheritance if the Holy Spirit is the deposit? You know, the opposite of stealing is to be a giver to be full of generosity towards the things of the kingdom and the things of God. Paul said this. He said, a man should stop stealing and he should learn to work. You know, I often think of thieves, people who are involved in crime, people who, you know, sell drugs, whatever it is. And I often think, you know, if the thief would take the energy that they invest into crime and invest it into actual real job, they'd probably make more money. I mean, most of the time, like really, truly, you think about crime and thieving and stealing, and it's work, man. You're making me laugh, Ivan. I can't look at you. (laughs) It's work, isn't it? It's work, man. It's work to be a thief. You know, in the Garden of Eden, when Adam took part in sin, God said to him, now you're going to work by the sweat of your brow. We make, a, we make a bad mistake in regards to that instruction from the Lord. See, we have this false idea that work is punishment. It was not punishment. It was for Adam's protection. See, Adam had idle hands, so he learned to chew an apple. And the Lord said, I don't want you eating that apple. So you're going to work. And that work is going to keep you busy so that you don't have time to mess around with that stuff. See, work is protection. And a man should work or he will be vulnerable to stealing. 
He will take shortcuts and become a cheater. You know, one of the, the great ways to be free from being a thief is learning to work hard, to learn the value of things. You know, I would say if you don't work hard, you're a candidate for depression. It's not good for your mind. You'll be down on yourself. You'll be disillusioned about yourself. You'll be all sad about your situation. Jesus said this, man, when someone compels you to go one mile, go two. You know, there is joy and there is liberty and there is freedom in, in work. And work is a beautiful thing. It's God's protection for you. You need to remember that when you go to work and you begin to complain, this is God's protection. This is keeping me busy so that I can't get busy with sin. And the beauty of it is this, is that God doesn't expect you to go 24-7. Say, no, you work. And then take your time of rest and trust me, I'm good. I'll provide for you. Take a Sabbath. Verse 16. Ninth commandment, straightforward one. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Straightforward, right? We're tight on time. A couple quick thoughts. You're a witness for Jesus. The question is, what kind of witness are you? Are you a good witness or are you a bad witness? But either way, you're a witness. You think of Peter, confronted at the fire. She said, you're one of them, aren't you? Was he a witness? Yes, he was. That night at the fire, he was a witness. It was just a really bad one. <laughs> We're always a witness as to the nature of Jesus Christ. Are we good witnesses or bad witnesses? Verse 17, last commandment, 10th commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his BMW or his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. To me, this one's a dagger, right? This is pff, nail in the coffin for me. You know, because who doesn't covet what other people have? We covet, the Bible says, because we do not have what we want. So we are greedy in our hearts and we want other people's stuff. You know, the, de the desire is not wrong. Desire to have things is not wrong. It's just the question of what we desire. Jesus tackled the issue of coveting and he said this. Seek first the kingdom. Isn't that, that's a good place for us to wrap up. Seek first the kingdom. I'll take care of the rest. Seek first the kingdom and everything else will be given to you as well. You know, when my heart is coveting, when your heart is coveting, what it reveals is this. There are other things that we are desiring besides the kingdom of God. The solution, oh, I'm not seeking the kingdom. Get your focus on the kingdom. Jesus summed up all of the law and the prophets with this command. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Trish, I'm going to invite you to come on up here. And why don't you guys stand with me? We're going to,